This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Circular Ruins by Jorge Luis Borges. The story runs 17 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. The Circular Ruins No one saw him disembark in the unanimous night. No one saw the bamboo canoe sink into the sacred mud. But in a few days, there was no one who did not know that the taciturn man came from the south, and that his home had been one of those numberless villages upstream in the deeply cleft side of the mountain where the Zend language has not been contaminated by Greek, and where leprosy is infrequent. What is certain is that the grey man kissed the mud, climbed up the bank, pushing aside, probably without feeling, the blades that were lacerating his flesh, and crawled, nauseated and blood-stained, up to the circular enclosure, crowned with a stone tiger or horse which was sometimes the colour of flame, and was now that of ashes. This circle was a temple which had been devoured by ancient fires, profaned by the miasmal jungle, and whose god no longer received the homage of men. The stranger stretched himself out beneath the pedestal. He was awakened by the sun high overhead. He was not astonished to find that his wounds had healed. He closed his pallid eyes and slept, though not through weakness of flesh, but through determination of will. He knew that this temple was the place required for his invincible intent. He knew that the incessant trees had not succeeded in strangling the ruins of another propitious temple downstream, which had once belonged to gods now burned and dead. He knew that his immediate obligation was to dream. Towards midnight, he was awakened by the inconsolable shriek of a bird. Tracks of bare feet, some figs, and a jug warned him that the men of the region had been spying respectfully on his sleep, soliciting his protection or afraid of his magic. He felt a chill of fear, and sought out a sepulchral niche in the dilapidated wall where he cloaked himself among unfamiliar leaves. The purpose which guided him was not impossible, though supernatural. He wanted to dream a man, wanted to dream him in minute entirety, and impose him on reality. This magic project had exhausted the entire expanse of his mind. If someone had asked him his name, or to relate some event of his former life, he would have not been able to give an answer. This uninhabited ruined temple suited him, for it contained a minimum of visible world. The proximity of the workmen also suited him, for they took it upon themselves to provide for his frugal needs. The rice and fruit they brought him were nourishment enough for his body, which was consecrated to the sole task of sleeping and dreaming. 
At first, his dreams were chaotic. Then, in a short while, they became dialectic in nature. The stranger dreamed that he was in the center of a circular amphitheater, which was more or less the burnt temple. Clouds of taciturn students filled the tiers of seats. The faces of the farthest ones hung at a distance of many centuries and as high as the stars, but their features were completely precise. The man lectured his pupils on anatomy, cosmography, and magic. The faces listened anxiously and tried to answer understandingly. As if they guessed the importance of that examination, which would redeem one of them from his condition of empty illusion and interpolate him into the real world. Asleep or awake, the man thought over the answers of his phantoms, but did not allow himself to be deceived by impostors. And in certain perplexities, he sensed a growing intelligence. He was seeking a soul. Worthy of participating in the universe. After nine or ten nights, he understood with a certain bitterness that he could expect nothing from those pupils who accepted his doctrine passively, but that he could only expect something from those who occasionally dared to oppose him. The former group, although worthy of love and affection, could not ascend to the level of individuals. The latter pre-existed. To a slightly greater degree, one afternoon. Now afternoons were also given over to sleep. Now he was only awake for a couple of hours at daybreak. He dismissed the vast illusory student body for good and kept only one pupil. He was a taciturn, sallow boy, at times intractable, and whose sharp features resembled those of his dreamer. The brusque elimination of his fellow students. Did not disconcert him for long. After a few private lessons, his progress was enough to astound the teacher. Nevertheless, a catastrophe took place. One day, the man emerged from his sleep as if from a viscous desert, looked at the useless afternoon light, which he immediately confused with the dawn, and understood that he had not dreamed. All that night. And all day long, the intolerable lucidity of insomnia fell upon him. He tried exploring the forest to lose his strength. Among the hemlock, he barely succeeded in experiencing several short snatches of sleep, veined with fleeting, rudimentary visions that were useless. He tried to assemble the student body, but scarcely had he articulated a few brief words of exhortation. When it became deformed and was then erased, in his almost perpetual vigil, tears of anger burned his old eyes. He understood that modelling the incoherent and vertiginous matter of which dreams are composed was the most difficult task that a man could undertake, even though he should penetrate all the enigmas of a superior and inferior order. Much more difficult than weaving a rope out of sand or coining the faceless wind, he swore he would forget the enormous hallucination which had thrown him off at first, and sought another method of work.
Before putting it into execution, he spent a month recovering his strength, which had been squandered by his delirium. He abandoned all premeditation of dreaming, and almost immediately succeeded in sleeping a reasonable part of each day. The few times that he had dreams during this period, he paid no attention to them. Before resuming his task, he waited until the moon's disk was perfect. Then, in the afternoon, he purified himself in the waters of the river, worshipped the planetary gods, pronounced the prescribed syllables of a mighty name, and went to sleep. He dreamed almost immediately with his heart throbbing. He dreamed that it was warm, secret, about the size of a clenched fist, and of a garnet colour. Within the penumbra of a human body, as yet without face or sex, during fourteen lucid nights he dreamt of it with meticulous love. Each night he perceived it more clearly. He did not touch it; he only permitted himself to witness it, to observe it, and occasionally to rectify it with a glance. He perceived it and lived it. From all angles and distances, on the fourteenth night he lightly touched the pulmonary artery with his index finger, then the whole heart, outside and inside. He was satisfied with the examination. He deliberately did not dream for a night. He took up the heart again, invoked the name of a planet, and undertook the vision. Of another of the principal organs. Within a year, he had come up to the skeleton and the eyelids. The innumerable hair was perhaps the most difficult task. He dreamed an entire man, a young man, but who did not sit up or talk, who was unable to open his eyes. Night after night, the man dreamt him asleep. In the Gnostic cosmogonies, demiurges fashion a red Adam who cannot stand, as crude, clumsy, and elemental as this Adam of dust was the Adam of dreams forged by the wizards' knights. One afternoon, the man almost destroyed his entire work, but then changed his mind. It would have been better had he destroyed it. When he had exhausted all supplications to the deities of Earth, he threw himself at the feet of the effigy, which was perhaps a tiger or perhaps a colt, and implored its unknown help. That evening at twilight, he dreamt of the statue. He dreamt it was alive, tremulous. It was not the atrocious bastard of a tiger and a colt, but at the same time these two fiery creatures. And also a bull, a rose, and a storm. This multiple god revealed to him that his earthly name was Fire, and that in this circular temple, and in others like it, people had once made sacrifices to him and worshipped him, and that he would magically animate the dreamed phantom in such a way that all creatures, except Fire itself and the dreamer, would believe. To be a man of flesh and blood, he commanded that 
Once this man had been instructed in all the rites, he should be sent off to the other ruined temple, whose pyramids were still standing downstream, so that some voice would glorify him in that deserted edifice. In the dream of the man that dreamed, the dreamed one awoke. The wizard carried out the orders he had been given. He devoted a certain length of time, which finally proved to be two years, to instructing him in the mysteries of the universe and the cult of fire. Secretly, he was pained at the idea of being separated from him. On the pretext of a pedagogical necessity, each day he increased the number of hours dedicated to dreaming. He also remade the right shoulder, which was somewhat defective. At times, he was disturbed by the impression that all of this had already happened. In general, his days were happy. When he closed his eyes, he thought, Now I will be with my son. Or, more rarely, the son I have engendered is waiting for me and will not exist if I do not go to him. Gradually, he began accustoming him to reality. Once he ordered him to place a flag on a faraway peak. The next day, the flag was fluttering on the peak. He tried other analogous experiments, each time more audacious. With a certain bitterness, he understood that his son was ready to be born, perhaps impatient. That night, he kissed him for the first time and sent him off to the other temple, whose remains were turning white downstream, across many miles of inextricable jungle and marshes. Before doing this, and so that his son should never know that he was a phantom, so that he should think himself a man like any other, he destroyed in him all memory of his years of apprenticeship. His victory and peace became blurred with boredom. In the twilight times of dusk and dawn, he would prostrate himself before the stone figure, perhaps imagining his unreal son carrying out identical rites in other circular ruins downstream. At night, he no longer dreamed, or dreamed as any man does. His perception of the sounds and forms of the universe became somewhat pallid. His absent son was being nourished by these diminution of his soul. The purpose of his life had been fulfilled. The man remained in a kind of ecstasy. After a certain time, which some chronicles prefer to compute in years and others in decades, two oarsmen awoke him at midnight. He could not see their faces, but they spoke to him of a charmed man in a temple of the north, capable of walking on fire without burning himself. The wizard suddenly remembered the words of the god. He remembered that of all the creatures that people the earth, fire was the only one who knew his son to be a phantom. This memory, which at first calmed him, ended by tormenting him. He feared lest his son should meditate on this abnormal privilege, and, by some means, find out that he was a mere simulacrum, not to be a man, to be a projection of another man's dreams. What an incomparable humiliation! What madness! Any father is interested in the sons he has procreated, or permitted, 
out of the mere confusion of happiness. It was natural that the wizard should fear for the future of that son, whom he had thought out entrail by entrail, feature by feature, in a thousand and one secret nights. His misgivings ended abruptly, but not without certain forewarnings. First, after a long drought, a remote cloud as light as a bird appeared on a hill. Then, towards the south, the sky took on the rose colour of leopard gums. Then came clouds of smoke which rusted the metal of the nights. Afterwards came the panic stricken flight of wild animals. For what had happened many centuries before was repeating itself. The ruins of the sanctuary of the god of fire was destroyed by fire. In a dawn without birds, the wizard saw the concentric fire licking the walls. For a moment, he thought of taking refuge in the water, but then he understood that death was coming to crown his old age and absolve him from his labours. He walked towards the sheets of flame. They did not bite his flesh. They caressed him and flooded him without heat or combustion. With relief, with humiliation, with terror, he understood that he also was an illusion, that someone else was dreaming him. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm the dream of Brian Alexander. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. Unfortunately, I am Paul. You're, you're the nightmare that is Paul? <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to talk about The Circular Ruins by Jorge Luis Borges, uh, first published in Spanish in 1940, and in English in 1962. Um, Brian, you were saying you had taught this story previously? Yeah, it was a, it was almost a disaster. Um, it was um, I, I taught a clutch of Borges stories in a first-year class. So these students were not literature majors. These were all over the map. And um, this story hit them like a ton of bricks. They had no idea where to go with this. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was just... I mean, they had a hard time finishing it, and when they did, there was what? What did I? Where mm-hmm. do I begin? And uh, we'd read Frankenstein the month before, so wow. I tried to get them to think about that, you know, the creation of the human. Um, but even then, it was uh, it was disturbing. Um, yeah, it was the hardest one of all Borges stories I've ever taught to teach to these guys, um, and I'm not surprised because it's uh, on the one hand, it's a very simple plot which is unusual for Borges. I mean, some of the stories don't really have a clear plot or a, or a character. Um, I mean, this is, uh, but w- how it works, all the different pieces of it just lead you in, one could say, circles. So uh, one of the things when I was searching for, you know, the Wikipedia entry, I'm typing in uh, the circular ruins, and I think I had mistyped something, and it came up, um, what was it? Uh, I, the circular, and then oh no, it was the law. Lo- it was for the Babylonian lottery. <laughs> um, it was um, uh, you know, rising action or something like that came up, and I was thinking, um, th- that there is no rising action in the Babylonian lottery, the story we did last week. Right. But 
there is a there is a plot in this, right? There is a beginning, sort of a middle, sort of, and uh, an end of denouement, right? No, it's it's it does have that horrible um, uh, Freytag or Freytag pyramid where yeah. you start with the exposition, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, the denouement. This was the bane of my existence as a as a kid because I'd be reading the book and enjoying the story, and then the teacher would say, "But you need to plot the the climax and the." Falling action, and I'm like, oh shit! So, Brian, can you please try, uh, describe the plot in terms of exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and denouement for us? Sure, it's one of those typical stories, you know, the basic plots, right? Um, where guy goes to this uh, other place far away, uh, creates a person out of dreams um, successfully, and then learns that uh, he himself is a dream. You know, typical plot. Right. It's like John W. It's like a Joseph Campbell plot, right? <laughs> I mean, there, there's so much, so much to love about this. And I, I think in many ways, Borges just dares us. Um, I mean, right from the start, listen, I, I love this. And I, mm. I just, just for the record, I'm going to put this in the record. My, I'm starting to learn Spanish because my two children are studying Spanish. And I want to be able to help them. But my end goal is to be able to read Borges in the original. And here's why. <laughs> Listen to the negatives in this opening sentence. No one saw him disembark. Within a few days, no one was unaware that the silent man, so not a speaking one, but someone who's known by not saying anything, um, where the Zend language is not contaminated with Greek, where leprosy is infrequent. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of nose. No, 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 no. And even there's a pun which might not work in uh, Spanish, but... Um, the unanimous night had mm-hmm. an un in it. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it claustrophobically cloaks everything that's happening right away. It's a big, you know, gesture to the reader that, um, this is going to be hard. The truth is that the obscure man kissed the mud. So the man's obscure already. Mm-hmm. And the second sentence we have to say, oh, but the truth is, because we began with not being able to have the truth. It's kind of like the beginning of Moby Dick. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, where which begins with this ontological plummet. Call me Ishmael because we're never going to learn what his real name is. And why call him Ishmael? I mean, I love this just from the opening. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the plot follows. But, you know, you're still going to be in this bizarre place. And the title and the end send you right back to this opening line. It's, right. it's like Finnegan's Wake. You're going to go right back to the beginning because you're trying to solve what just happened. It will circulate and circulate again. In the Garden of Forking Paths, there's that novel with yeah. the, you can start anywhere in it, and you read the 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 spine is is yeah. uh, has no edge, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> so right. you can start reading anywhere. It's it's and a, it's keep a, reading and keep reading and never end the book. It's not recovery. That's 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 one of the classic documents. Yeah, right. and, and that puts me in mind of uh, Jeff Vandermeer's Ambergris, uh, the hardcover edition, where you have a story in the jacket flap. So, like, wow. everything in the book is a story or a story, part of the story of of the city. Oh, wow. This is this is the uh, the city with the mushroom people, right? Yep. He, he, he had an original paperback edition, and then he had the hardcover edition, which was had slightly different stories and had the additional story in the jacket <laughs> flap. So it just kind of – he was definitely playing with the same sort of – Playing with the text and the circularity of the text going round and round and 
you start somewhere and then you go around to the end. It doesn't quite matter where you start because it's all a circle. One of the things I said about Borges is, uh, you know, collected works, the collected works of Borges, right? There is no one book that can claim to have that yep. because you pick up a copy of Fictions, right? It has a lot of the stories. Then I say, wait a second, one of them's missing, right? And then you pick <laughs> up uh, Labyrinth and <laughs> it's because I said, wait, I've seen some of these before. But um, the other thing that's really cool is that although we have, uh, you know, the, the Borges canon sort of in our heads, uh, you know, a bunch of stories. He also, because he did tons and tons of translation, um, it, and he changed every <laughs> translation he ever made, you know, more so than just, you know, trying to get the right word. He would change characters. He would change the plot. He would change the title. He would change the meaning. He would improve the story or change the story so that it, it has an interpretation that he thinks is interesting um, that we can possibly never have the complete canon. And I, I was prepared for the idea in starting reading this story that, that at the end it would be the exact same guy, you know, coming from downstream or from the coming up from the South. Right. Um, and it is kind of, but it's not exactly right. I mean, because he, we, we get the language of doppelganger several times. Mm. Uh, you know, he was a silent boy, sallow, sometimes obstinate, with sharp features which reproduced those of the dreamer. Yep, uh -huh. yep. Okay, doppelganger. But uh, we also get the uh, father and son angle, you know, <clears throat> repeatedly. Um, and, uh, and you know, that, so that tells you that there's that dynamic. So, I mean, among other things, I thought this was an interesting uh, meditation on parenthood. Which I didn't realize until reading it this time. Um, no, I, I I love so many strange things here. It's a god of fire, right? Which is really interesting. Because in the Western tradition, we have this close alignment of fire and enlightenment. Um, you know, if Eric Rabkin were here, he'd talk about uh, Saul at Tarsus, you know, being struck by enlightenment. You know, we can talk about Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. Um, in so many ways, this should be the fire that illuminates, the fire that clarifies. And ultimately, it does. It, this is how he revealed, by passing through the fire, is where our unnamed, un-narrator, or I'm sorry, our un-protagonist realizes that he's actually a dream. But he doesn't know by whom, and he realizes this with humiliation and with terror. So I mean, it's, it's possible this is an unilluminating or a badly illuminating god. Well, it, it's not even that he passes through the fire of the van. He starts with that. He starts. He starts the. He starts out underneath the pedestal of the god of fire to start with. So he starts at the temple of fire and he ends with the fire. So where yep. again the circularity? He doesn't have a beginning or an end because that because he is a dream of somebody or something else of Boris himself of some of something else. We don't know. He and he can't know, and that, as you said, is humiliating to him. That he's, he's basically this trap figure in this endless uh, circularity. It's just you know another thing for parenting that you know you you have the the enormous rush of creating a life, seeing a life into the world. I mean, it's an enormous power on all levels, psychologically and socially. But at the same time, is the humiliation of realizing you were the creation of someone else. You are mm. the other end of that power, and always will be. Um, no, you're absolutely right about fire. I mean, there's that. I love this 
God, I've got to learn Spanish so I can read this. There's a beautiful description that the uh, circular enclosure, I'm sorry, the stone tiger or horse, which was mm-hmm. once the color of fire and now was that of ashes. Beautiful. I mean, you can't just say it was red and now it's gray. Mm-hmm. You know, because fire has no single color. So it makes you think, oh, orange and white and yellow and red. And the same with ashes. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful. Yeah. The, the man is gray, right? Who crawls in from outside the temple, and what does he crawl under? The leaves, right? Right, and they're uh, the leaves, the color of fire. They're unknown leaves. Hmm. I love that. Why are they unknown? I mean, you know, it, it's um, same reason the night is unanimous. <laughs> this this story is filled with these beautiful little thrill. Like uh, his afternoons were tributaries of sleep. Mm, yeah. Or the impossible dream tasks. One of them is there's weaving a rope of sand. Okay, that's bad. But coining the faceless wind, right? It's not just <laughs> coining the wind, which sounds amazing by itself. That's the mm-hmm. faceless wind on top of that. Man, this is just gorgeously written. Well, so the rope of sand is um, a folkloric reference. Right. It's, it's one of these kind of tasks that um, wrongdoers are often set into to do for all eternity. Um, there's a few, there's a Cornish legend about a, a smuggler or a pirate and his ghost haunts a beach forever cursed to try and make a rope of sand, which of course the tide always comes in and washes away. Ah, uh, mm. there's an echo of that in uh, Lottery of Babylon too. One of the, mm. one of the tasks is they have to add or subtract a grain of sand from the innumerable ones on the beach. Right. <laughs> Who would know if you did it, right? <laughs> I was like, I did it. <laughs> the company knows all. Yeah, the right. company knows all. But here there is there is no company. There's there's this weird um again, it's a, a kind of a ruin of a religion that somehow comes true. Um I mean, for me, these these Borges stories are in many ways these evocations of faith, these these creations of the supernatural in a world that is busy ridding itself of the supernatural. I want to read that paragraph that uh we, we referenced here because I think it's it's got a great start. He understood, or part of the paragraph anyways, he understood that modeling the incoherent and vertiginous matter of which dreams are composed was the most difficult task that a man could undertake. Even though he should penetrate all the enigmas of a superior and inferior order, much more difficult than weaving a rope out of sand or coining the faceless wind. When he creates that man, um, first of all, the man is not alive, right? But he... He starts with the heart, then he does the body, and he redoes the shoulder, and he spends an infinite amount of time doing the hairs on his arm, right? (laughs) But the heart takes two weeks, right? Fourteen days. It's it's not the creation of man in, you know, uh, the creation of the earth and creation of man. This guy is not the god of, of the Bible, exactly. But... There's something interesting about all this timing, you know, exact times put in. And what does he do? This is this is the hilarious part to me. Is right. He's a. It's pretty clear he's a god from early on. Uh, the people are worshiping him, are bringing him uh, food and figs um, for his dreaming. Right. Um, this is the hilarious thing to me. Is he is a dream god? The god who his big task is to dream. When he has trouble, he can't dream. Right, and that's a big problem. Yeah. This makes me think of um, 
the the funniest thing i think i think it's from lovecraft and hopefully mr jim moon can tell me the exact source but there was this hilarious uh line from one of the dreamland stories where uh it says x the man was a prodigious dreamer and i i, I always want to put that as like you know my claim to fame <laughs> like, <laughs> I can go around to people at a party and say, so what do you do? And I say, well, I don't know about you, but I'm a prodigious dreamer. I think it's Salifas or, um, Salifas, uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, dream quest of unknown color. I'm pretty sure it's a description yeah. of a King, King Karains who dreamed yeah, up right, the, uh, right. the entire yeah. wonderful city. Um, I just love, I love the fact that somebody could go up to someone else at a party and say, I'm a prodigious dreamer because, uh, even though I do tweet my dreams and dreams do play an important role in my life, what's so funny is everyone's dreams are completely separate. So, and they only exist for you until you communicate them to someone else. So the fact that you could have a claim to fame about, uh, being a dreamer is the most ridiculous thing ever. It's like I have a, have a thought that I forget every night that's amazing and, and, uh, I can lord that over you. In this case, the man can dream a man into existence, um, and the, the dream can dream another man into existence. And this is where the story is both a, a hilariously ridiculous, but also incredibly powerful, because, of course, the whole story is a, a dream in the sense that it was crafted by a, a man, and it is not a true story. It's a dream written down. That meta thing that, you know, everybody's accusing everybody else of in the, in the, <laughs> what is it, the postmodern school, right? Uh, I think this is, it's apotheosis or something like that. Well, this right? is, this is one of the reasons why you get Borges as a, as a key precursor to postmodernism and a big hero for postmodern thinkers. Um, you know, so this, you get that, this, this endless series of references and, uh, being cut off from any kind of primal cause or, or reality. And we, yet we do like in, um, uh, as, uh, we were talking about in the other story in, um, the lottery, the Babylonian lottery, uh, we do get a sense that there is a time somewhere in this story, right? So it's in that first paragraph, um, where the Zen language had not been contaminated by the Greek and where leprosy is infrequent, right? It's, it's not Hansen's disease yet. <laughs> yeah, true, true. I, just, um, I, I love, I love that you could from the South. The, these are, these are characteristics of a society, mm-hmm. you know, that you have to worry about Greek contaminating your language and, uh, you know, too much leprosy. I mean, it's just... <laughs> well, that, that contamination of language makes me think of uh, different Borges stories, like say Talon Upar Orbit's Teridus, where yeah, where we're given bits of uh, the Talon language and how strange it is. And I had even tweeted a uh, tweeted a a line uh, a bit of that from before. It was uh, Hula U Fang and Alexis Malo, which is the way to say that the moon rose above the river, but the actual little translation is that, that the, the, the moon, the moon, the moonness was going above the river rather than the actual physical moon. And so that actual twisting of language is something that Borges likes to do a lot and, and look at, uh, look at things in, uh, a, a very postmodern light before there was postmodernism. It's like, what, what can we really understand about, if we can't understand language, we can't understand 
the world around us because it's just not intersecting with our reality quite the way we expect or want to. And that, that, that and that goes uh, with yeah, with the beautiful language in here. It's it's all in the the beautiful language of a dream and but it's it, it is in the end a dream or but whose dream? Mm. The Zend Zend uh, I found that word and I'm probably not classically trained enough to figure it out but I I tweeted you guys the the connections I I know about it so Zend is somehow tied into Babylon as well because Voltaire wrote a novel uh kind of a novel about a character named Zadig who yes um lives in a kind of proto Babylon or fake Babylon that's kind of a lot more like Europe <laughs> but um the there's a book of Zend in there. And then of course we've got it in here and that ties it back to the Babylonian lottery, the lottery in Babylon. And also of course the library of Babel, uh, which is a, is sort of another proto myth. So he's tying it back, giving us the real word Greek, real world word, Greek, real world Greek. Yep. And then, uh, we've got, I, 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 for some reason, was thinking that this is in South America. I don't know. Maybe that's just because he's from Argentina. But we've got this river, right, that you can get into in your bamboo canoe, go upriver or downriver uh, farther south. And it happens again later in the story where there's more temples. It's not just the one temple, right? You go farther down the river, there's another burned temple down there. Yeah. I, I was thinking more Africa, like uh, H. Ryder Haggard, sort of mm. go, going into the lost civilizations in darkest Africa, because like the, not yet contaminated by the Greek, made me think of those lost civilizations mm. that the Egyptians and the Romans founded yeah. in the middle of Africa mm. in, in the Haggard stories. I like I like that you're saying not yet contaminated. That made you think of it. It's that that double negative that yep, it does. Yep. Right? No one saw him disembark in the unanimous night. No one saw the bamboo canoe sink into the sacred mud. But a few days later, there was there was no one who did not know. All those <laughs> this, this you remind me of this. Um, my son and I were reading um, Xenophon's and Abbasis, um, which is just always extraordinary. I mean, one of my favorite adventure books and. Uh, whenever I go to the sea, I think about the climactic scene of the sea and that. But there's this weird bit that was really disturbing me this time, which is that when Xenophon describes – have you guys read this or seen this? I, I, I've, I've read stories and books which are taken from that original, but I haven't actually read the original. Just, but just, you should explain to the listeners what it is for those who don't know. I, only, I read about a page of this in Greek when I was in college, and it, it was a little too far for me, but the um, – this is a, a great adventure story. Xenophon is a Greek mercenary, um, and he and 10,000 Greeks are hired by the Persian, by a faction of the Persian Empire to go and play a role in the civil war that's about to unfold. So they travel to the heart of the Persian Empire, they're, they're, and the civil war is about to start when the leader of their faction gets killed and the whole civil war shuts down right away. So there they are, 10,000, surrounded by millions and millions of Persians, and they have to figure out a way to get out and get home. So it's it's just terrific stuff. You know, they have to outwit uh, enemy units. They have to survive on not enough food. They have to climb mountains and deal with mountain people who are throwing rocks at them. And it's it's just epic adventure. I mean, it's it's terrific. 
Um, but one of the things I, I, and I recommend it for anybody, it's just great. Um, there's, this isn't one of those classical texts, which is very interesting. It is, but because it's also just a great story. Um, one of the things I'd forgotten is that you get all of these descriptions of cities and villages because it's a travel log. They get to go through all these places and Xenophon describes them as populated or unpopulated. You know, they find this village and it's this big, it's near this river and it's uninhabited now or this one. And it is populated. Do you think what kind of a historical time do you have to be in where you describe something that way? You know, there's, there's this, you're you're in the aftermath of disasters. You're after some kind of catastrophe. And it's kind of like being in Michigan, where you're like, oh, that part of Detroit, people still live there, you know. Mm. But mm. but it's it's that kind of. I, I, and you're you're mentioning this is giving me a real vibe for that for this story, where there's another uninhabited village or another destroyed temple. You know, you're you're a, a visual a visual image. I think is better for the. Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, one of the things I love about it is that he, he populates the screen with so many ruins and so many leftover signs of the past that Tolkien talks about, but he makes them very, very visible, very clear. So you have to wonder, yet, yet another abandoned village, yet another abandoned temple. Of course, we're in that kind of belated time. A lesser time, yeah, which ties into the best-known yes. adaptation of the of the. The Anabasis, the, the movie The Warriors, which is set in 1970, right. 70s New York, and mm, not, not, not a low point in this in the history of the city. And so as this gang tries to get back to their home turf, it's yeah, it's it's. Good. Now I got to watch that movie. I've been I, I've been sort of thinking about it, but tying it, saying that it's oh, from this ancient. Oh, oh yeah, it totally story. is. That's awesome. I, I yeah. lived in New York in 1976. I know exactly what's going on. And yeah, that's The Warriors is kind of an optimistic version of New York. <laughs> <laughs> But this is uh, different. I, this is this is a this is a low tech version. I, I had a question I wanted to ask you guys about this, if mm. if I may. Um, we don't see a lot of the villagers here. Uh, we don't hear a lot about them, and I, I always look for that kind of social context. But there's a line here they they bring him tributes, um, they bring him uh, gifts, but they would see that his frugal necessities were supplied. The rice and fruit of their tribute. Was sufficient sustenance for his body. So, uh, I was a student of Eric Rabkin's before I was a TA for him, and uh, this makes me think of Eric because Eric is is very passionate about being a vegetarian, mm-hmm. and this shows up in literature. For example, one of the ways you know that Frankenstein's monster is a good person when he is born is because he only eats uh, a vegan diet. Uh, he only eats. It's Shelley's very nuts. Exactly. Shelley's very careful to point that out. Um, I wonder what Borges is doing with this. Why, of all the details, to draw our attention to that? And the only thing I could think of was that they're not sacrificing meat to him. Mm. He's not actually a god. He's got to make some meat. <laughs> yeah. He's got dreams of meat to being. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's also not burned sacrifice. It's not where you sear uh, a lamb or something. This is that would be too frightening for this for this uh, god of getting burned. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe. Well, this is Abel, not Cain. Mm-hmm. I want to read the that par- the end of that paragraph and the beginning of the ne- uh, well and the next one 
because I think there's something really cool going on. That's where the story really gets cooking. (laughs) 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 All right. So here's how it ends. The rice and fruit they brought him were nourishment enough for his body, which was consecrated to the sole task of sleeping and dreaming. So his body is a temple. (laughs) 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 That's why he doesn't eat meat. Um, At first, his dreams were chaotic. And then I love this. Then a short while they uh, later they became dialectic. <laughs> ah. <laughs> the stranger dreamed that he was in the center of a circular amphitheater, which he is, right? Which was more or less the burnt temple. Clouds, and this is the awesome metaphor. Clouds of taciturn students filled the tiers of seats. The many faces of the farthest ones hung at a distance of many centuries as high as the stars. So his, his students are the clouds. But their features were completely precise. Ah, but their features were completely precise. Exactly. The man lectured his pupils on anatomy, cosmography, and magic. So the man is the dreamer here, right? The faces listened anxiously and tried to answer understandingly, as if they guessed the importance of that examination, which would redeem one of them from his condition of empty illusion and interpolate, there's that word again, him into the real world. Asleep or awake, the man thought over the answers of his phantoms and uh, did not allow himself to be deceived by imposters. And in certain perplexities, he sensed a growing intelligence. He He was seeking a soul worthy of participating in the universe. Now, just this image of a man lecturing to the clouds, right? while actually asleep and he puts his focus on individual students trying to, this is metaphors developed a little bit in the next couple of paragraphs. He he puts his focus on the students. The ones that answer just with nods and smiles um, are not worthy. He needs ones that can argue with him dialectically, right? Mm -hmm. At least a little bit. And I don't remember who – it might be a Lawrence Block. I'm not sure who – I think it might be a Lawrence Block story. There's a great story uh, somewhere. Someone wrote about a man who had the ability to uh, – he's like – his only superpower is the ability to destroy clouds. So he, sta- he would go out in the field, right, and he'd look up at the sky. It's a nice blue, blue sky day, and then there would be like a, a few puffy clouds in the sky. And he could just look up and stare at it. And the his the power of his mind and the power of his will could make the cloud dissolve, right? <laughs> so he'd go up and look, pick out a cloud out of the sky and say, that one. And he just sort of sends heat beams you know, from his eyes to dissipate the cloud. And in this case, he's actually doing the opposite. In this story, we've got a man staring up at the clouds, looking for ones that they all have their distinctive features, but looking for ones that are giving the right signals to him so that he can make them real. And I, I'm sure we've all done this. We go out at, in the field on a nice day and look at the clouds and look, there's a dragon, right? Ah, there's a, there's a grumpy man. Right? <laughs> we can see in the clouds the images. And this is very much a dream metaphor right because people are like clouds in dreams they they can change shape they're very amorphous and i just found this image this metaphor to be 
perfectly capturing what dreams are like. But it's even a two-way thing. It's not only that he's looking for the clouds, the clouds are hoping for it. It's like as if yeah. they guess the importance of that examination to redeem one of them. So mm-hmm. it's like the, their search for to, be, to become real, even if it's a dream reality. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 a, it's a two-sided coin. He's He's looking for something to create, but they're looking to be born into that creation. Well, that, mm-hmm. that makes sense that this is a dream of a dialectical nature uh, because you get that sense of participation. Um, something is being asserted and then it elicits its opposite. And that's one way of looking at this, of negation, which is what we began the story with. But it's also the sense of, of dialectics in the, in the older sense of pedagogy. And I, I love the fact that to begin making a life, he begins as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, parents do teach their children. Um, but he, but it's the worst weeder class, right? He gets so many people that only one could pass, right? How brutal is that? My God, you know, this is a terrible class. <laughs> but there's also, again, that, uh, that uh, Frankenstein element to it, where when, when Victor first starts studying, all he studies is magic. And then he goes to the <laughs> University of Ingolstadt, and he learns, oh, no, 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 there, there's, there have been developments in science in the past 300 years. Maybe you should pay attention to those. So, you know, here we get cosmography and magic. And, of course, anatomy, which he needs to use the next page. Yeah, that's, that circular amphitheater with the, uh, ma- with the anatomy kind of reminds me of the uh, dissection theaters that were popular hmm. in the Renaissance as a way of, as we, people exploring human anatomy and learning the secrets of the body, they would have these demonstration theaters like in Italy and in England, where you'd have surgeries when people watch watch it. Watch still it work. have them. They're still around, right? That's for teaching. Yep. Right, right. But it was almost like a spectator sport back then, in some ways. Sure. Yes. Learn about the human body. Watch, watch this cut this guy open. Yeah, it was a key point in early science was to say, you know, let's show this off. Look, here's electricity. Wow, it's awesome. I got a, I got a paragraph start that I want Mr. Jim Moon to to dash himself against and see how. <laughs> He does, because uh, this is one I highlighted. I specifically highlighted. I highlighted it twice, and I, I'm baffled by it, and I'm also interested in it. Uh, it's on page five, uh, start of a paragraph. It says, "In the Gnostic cosmogonies, demiurge fashion, oh, sorry, demiurge's fashion, a red atom who cannot stand, as clumsy, crude, and elemental as this atom of dust, was." The Atom of Dreams, forged by the Wizard's Knights. Now, who's the wizard? <laughs> and how many atoms have we got here? <laughs> do you see this one, Mr. Jimin? It's on page five. Yes, I wondered it's... about this when I listened to it today. I was thinking, oh, that rings a re- vague bell about the, the Gnostics. And, um, and I think, actually, Adam in Hebrew means red anyway. Right. And um, Adama is Earth, right? Yes, yes. So I, mean, I think this is, I mean, the, the, I think it refers to the Gnostic idea that the world was created by the Demiurge, which was actually a false god. <laughs> and mm. you have this, right? I mean, there's various variations on it, but it's kind of, you know, it's kind of, you know, um, Philip K. Dick played with this idea in some of his later works, such as yep. uh, Vallis, the idea yep. that you know, we're in Universe B, which is controlled by the evil Demiurge. Mm. And the, the the real universe is the universe A, where God is, who's constantly trying to break through into our reality and save us from the uh, the demiurge. So there's the uh, there's the red atom, 
the one who cannot stand. And that makes me think of the one that he's making, the with the red heart. Mm-hmm. And he can't he can't get up because he's just, yeah. Well, he there's, no there's, very, there's very kind of gnostic and um, assorted kind of addendums to the creation story of like you have um, the idea that you know before Eve. God created Lilith, who didn't turn out right. so good, and became the mother of <laughs> demons. Uh, the, the Red Adam was kind of like a prototype, which <laughs> just, just didn't work. Mm. It reminds me of uh, this geopolitical urban legend. Have you guys followed the Red Mercury stories? Mm, I heard a little bit about it. What's what, what's going on with that? It's just just Google it, and you'll you will chuckle. It's it's a um, as far as anyone can tell, it's a combination of urban legend and disinformation that it's um, possibly created by some intelligence agency. But basically, if you're a terrorist group or a poor nation, you want nuclear weapons, Red Mm. Fury looks like a cheap way to get going on that. So people keep trying to buy and sell Red Mercury. The thing is, it doesn't exist. It's like the Philosopher's Stone. Um, I I believe Red Mercury is mentioned in Alchemical Text, which is probably where they they lifted the idea from. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's it's like, you know, you have Al-Qaeda trying to buy an alchemical item. You know, it's so strange. So that's like the Wikipedia entry that has been... Uh, locked so that <laughs> all the terrorists are like, what can I get this cheap? <laughs> oh, I get this. People buy and sell this. There's all kinds of stories. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's like the cold. It's like the cold fusion of nuclear fission. Uh, uh, so uh, I'm still not clear. There's the red atom. Right? Well, I've dug up a little bit more of. Um, just picked up a book up. A red Adam in the Gnostic philosophy is essentially what we would call a, a golem, a man made oh. out of clay but without a soul. Right. Oh. And then, and then it says, an elemental as this atom of dust. Now, this atom of dust, it it, it, it sounds like it should be A-T-O-M, right? <laughs> atom of dust. But it's not. It's atom of dust, A-D-A-M of dust, was the atom of dreams. So there's an atom of this atom of dust. It almost makes me think that the the person telling the story is made like us of dirt, right? Of like the regular atom from the you know the straight up version of the Bible, right? Um, but then there's this atom of dreams, the man forged by the wizard's knights. Now the wizard, I think, is supposed to be the guy who's doing the dreaming here right yeah he's the wizard mm. yeah and, mm. when and the, yeah i think he's also a, he's an well he is also an atom of dreams well he doesn't know that we don't know that till the last paragraph but yeah but yeah it's the, the wizard is definitely our our protagonist because it's a one afternoon the man almost destroyed his entire work but then changed his mind and then we go on to um Again, that's a uh, Frankenstein too. Again, right. yeah, it would have been better had he destroyed it, which is it's just it's interesting. And it's in, and I I, I know Borges did it on purpose. He puts that in parentheses rather than mm-hmm. almost like as oh, it's a side. It would be better if he had destroyed it. Why? Why would it be better if he had destroyed this atom? Well, if you if you if you're being trained at this point to expect that he's making a doppelganger that will destroy him. Mm. then that would make sense. You know, William Wilson has got to get rid of this guy. Mm. Um, but, um, but instead he, it's, you know, it's only because he, he isn't destroyed at the end. He's just, he just learns a terrible truth. Well, they sort of, they sort of parallels with, um, the Lovecraft story, Hypnos, 
Yes. Mm. Ah. Yes. And then there's, there's several other Lovecraft dreaming related stories about where um, the dreams and reality get uh, conflated and mixed up, and you know people just go, aren't sure of, you know, like in the outsider, of which world is the dream, which world is the real world. Right. Right. Oh, that's a great comparison. William Wilson was one of the stories mm. that Borges was really obsessed with. Mm. Well, there's a there's a long tradition of uh, doppelganger fiction and criticism, and Borges plays a role in that. Um, after all, Borges is the one who's crazed about mirrors, right? Right. Right. Um, yeah, Wilson is that. Have you have you guys done that story before in the SF audio? Uh, William Wilson? Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I've not. I've never even read. I've I've only read about it, and it sounds interesting, but I I hadn't had a hook. Now I'm starting to get hooked. I, I'm also seeing just in searching, uh, Borges wrote up. Somebody's wrote a piece called Borges' Philosophy of Pose Composition, which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so some guy wrote a book or a, a paper on Borges talking about Poe, talking about writing. <laughs> and, you know, here we are doing a podcast talking about that. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, um, I've often said Borges is kind of like the literary equivalent of, of Escher. You know, you get yeah. these uh, paradoxes and regresses and <laughs> loops and um, these almost mathematical ideas expressed in fiction. Yes. You know, the other th- I mean, I, I see the parallels with Dick a lot of the times uh, with Borges, but uh, the more I look at it, the more I think he's he's more like Lovecraft. They They're only born nine years apart. Um, Lovecraft didn't live as long as Borges, so he, he didn't get the recognition that, uh, he, you know, Borges did eventually. Um, but they had kind of, uh, similar, you know, they came from aristocratic sort of families. They had, uh, parents who were, or grandparents who were big into books that they passed this on. They became, you know, sort of, um, they both love suits <laughs> and and walking around town, right? They love their they they love their towns. You know, mm. Providence is what Lovecraft thinks is the greatest thing ever. He loves a lot of things. Loves Providence probably yep. the most. Uh, Borges, you know, endlessly uh, all the all the stories we don't read about him are about um, Argent, uh, Argentina's uh, Buenos Aires, right? Yep. Um, so th- there's a lot of parallels there, but there's also parallels in their interests in that we've got uh, Mr. Jim Moon, you you should talk about this because I think you're you probably know better than I well so they both had a they're both like tremendously erudite men as well you know that this love of mm. reading but also this kind of almost this urge to consume and to, and to read everything possible um, and, and they wrote about writing too well that's right? it and, and, and Borges, like Lovecraft, you know, was a was a great letter writer, and you know, he kind of they're both very much connected with their readers. In you know, the Lovecraft, well, one remove, uh, you know, he tutored numerous sort of made friends with numerous writers in his circle, and you know, some people have said, "Damn, if you hadn't been writing so many letters, we'd had more stories." <laughs> you know, because he wrote a prodigious amount. You know, like boy has been, you know, a lot of times, you know, teaching and talking and meeting people. And, you know, that was, they both have this, they both have these, this sort of reputation of being the, you know, the, these strange visionary figures. But when you look at the life stories, you find that actually they're both quite actually gregarious men in their way. Or, you know, actually, they're not these weird recluses who have these strange visions and, 
you know, look at the universe in strange, bizarre ways. And I think, you know, like, like Lovecraft, uh, Borges often, I think, as a person gets confused with his own characters. Uh, you know, I think that's, yeah. it tends to happen a lot with anyone who writes about, you know, the strange and the bizarre and, uh, altered perceptions of, you know, we, we kind of pose the, pose the same, you know, we tend to think of Poe as being like one of his own characters and see his life as one of his own horror stories. And I think the truth is, um, a lot more complex than that. But I mean, for me, I think there's sort of curious parallels with, um, uh, Borges and Lovecraft that they had a strong sense of the aesthetic, of beauty, of meaning, um, you know, a belief in the power of story itself to illuminate and enrich. And certainly, I mean, as a young man, I found it, it wasn't a huge gulf for me to cross to go from reading, um, Lovecraft to Borges because it, it seemed it was you know, looking at the same kind of questions and the same kind of, you know, ideas about our place in the universe, how we relate to them, how we make sense of the universe in stories mm-hmm. and how we connect to people, places and how we interpret knowledge. And it just kind of, uh, you know, Borges is kind of more <laughs> upbeat, shall we say, and, uh, uh, more poetical, but there's, you know, there's that story sort of impulses in Lovecraft's writing, you know, you, they both were seeking to sort of in their writing to, you know, to blow minds, as it were. So, you know, this is why, you know, they both became very popular with the counterculture in the 60s and the 70s. Mm. I know that uh, I don't think Lovecraft ever read Borges because I don't think the timing was right for he, he died just as Borges is is about to come into English. I don't right? think uh, Lovecraft would have appreciated Spanish. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's on the bottom of the wrong continent, right? He, he did read Poe, and he he read a lot of English stuff, but I'm not sure that he he read Spanish either. But I know that Borges did read Lovecraft, and there he even wrote a a story um, that is very badly OCR'd uh, online uh, called "There Are More Things," and it's dedicated to Lovecraft. It's kind of a, a haunted house story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I read about the way Borges interacted with Lovecraft is that he would have people read it to him because he's, he's blind at this point, but he would always stop halfway through the story and start arguing with, with <laughs> Lovecraft. Um, I don't know what the arguments were about, but, um, it, it's really interesting because I don't think Borges has the cosmic vision uh, you know, cosmic is the word that, you know, most people want to say eldritch is the word that Lovecraft is most associated with. But I think cosmic is even better. Mm. Um, or dream is even better. And that's certainly a crossover here. Um, you know, uh, what's his most famous story is the call of Cthulhu is Cthulhu lies dreaming, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, there's that, but I think that interpolate, right? This sort of connects us to Dick as well, because interpolate is we we get a bit of sense data. Here's a bit. Here's a bit. Here's a bit. We fill in the details, right? We don't see just by by having the world come into our eyes. We project uh, our ideas about what the world is is by taking interpolations of data right little bits and then little bits of data and then filling in the blanks and 
I think a story like this allows us to do that as well because it, it, this story is not complete in the sense that I I I, I try when I try and visualize it we've got right at the very beginning we've got a god temp a temple dedicated to a god that looks a little bit like a horse and a little bit like a tiger mm-hmm. right mm. it's sometimes uh uh the color of fire and sometimes gray so filling in the the steps between those things is our job to see what's there and i think there's i think there's a like these guys are really dick borges and lovecraft i think they're sort of working the world in a different way responding to it and then writing it down for for us to see what their dreams are like I think you're right. I think you're absolutely absolutely right. And there and there are connections, but the and there are slight overlaps, but they are very different perspectives on the world as seen through that veil and gauze of a dream. I mean, I'm trying. I was as as, we, as you were talking, I was trying to imagine what would a Borges city look like in in Kadath, and and my mind just like mm. oh, I have to really think about that hard. That's a, that's not a casual mm-hmm. thought to. To try to come up with what sort of a Borgesian city you'd wind up with in, in the in the dreamlands. Same thing somebody, for Jack. Yeah, somebody said uh, something that made me think. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. Um, remember Christopher Nolan's movie Inception? From, mm-hmm. Yeah, Inception. That's actually kind of a Borgesian story as well. Labyrinths I mean, are everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's got the labyrinths. It's got uh, the levels, right? Uh, it's far more concretized, I guess, because it's a movie rather than a story. Um, it also has a much more, uh, you know, it has the plot, right? Which is, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna trick this guy, right? Right. And it, this one, I mean, the plot that this one has is, is, uh, uh there's a guy who's dreaming. We're not sure why, because he's the dream god or whatever. And then he creates a being because that's his thing. <laughs> and then, uh, hmm. Now, going back to the very beginning, and I think this might be a translation thing, um, there's a, a line that may, really made me feel strange about what's going on. And I thought, oh, this is going to come up at the end, and it doesn't. So uh, this is uh, maybe the second or third sentence. What is certain is the gray man kissed the mud, climbed up the bank without pushing aside, probably without feeling the blades, which were lacerating his flesh and crawled nauseated and bloodstained up to the circular enclosure crowned by a stone tiger or a horse. And then well, that's interesting get... because the translation I've got as not blades, but brambles, right? And they delacerated his flesh. Delacerated. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. That's the translation. Let's yeah. So what's going <laughs> on here? And, and, and it's like, okay, so if you, the blades of lacerating his flesh. It sounds sounds like it's a initiation. He's going through pain and agony to reach this temple. Well, I, I thought I thought that the, he he had come out of the canoe covered in in you know these blades stabbed into him that he was dying. That's why he was crawling, right? And I think I thought that the that blades were circling the temple. Oh, exactly. So when he he he's you know he's got these there are blades. In him, it says, right? I'll just read that again. 
What is certain is the the gray man certain again. Was <laughs> the uncertain is that the gray man kissed the mud, climbed up the bank without pushing aside the blades which were lacerating his flesh. So where are these? In one translation, um, there there are there's something maybe on the bank, but it doesn't say that that he's getting the injuries on his way up. But that that's one. Uh, I think the uh, George Goodall audiobook has it that way. Here, it's like the the blades are in him already, and it, he doesn't push them aside or like pull them out or whatever. And he climbs up to the circular enclosure, right? Right. Crowned with his stone tiger. This immediately made me think of when when I heard the Brambles interpretation that it's the crown of thorns. Ah, oh, right? Jesus, and. Of course, with the temple being crowned, that is a natural interpretation. On in my drawing, as I started drawing it, I said, "Okay, well, maybe." Oh, what does this look like? He's climbing up to the temple, right out of the bank, which <laughs> and the river, which is like the wound earlier in the story. Where did this man come from? He came from uh, from the south, and out of a crack or a rent, I think it said, in the mountain. Yeah, right, where in the, the deeply cleft side of the mountain. Right. Where the uh, where the Hansen's disease, where leprosy is infrequent, right? And he climbs out of the mud and then up to the temple, climbs into his own head. <laughs> Goes to sleep in his own head. And then dreams a dream to make a man. And so it is almost biblical in the in the the Christian sense instead of the what we were thinking more um, uh, earlier sense the Old Testament. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> well, once again, we get that creation that isn't coming from a first cause that isn't coming out of a god. It's this creation that is somehow cut off from those roots and suspended and circulating around. Um, and it's, uh, it's almost autonomous. It's almost a sense of self-creation. But we know by the end that, again, like Lovecraft, that instead of being self-controlled and self-powered, that he's merely the plaything and forces far greater than he can comprehend. Or appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like like Lovecraft, um, this is the kind of horror that isn't based on gore or blood. This is the this is the mental terror. The, the cos- existential, yeah, cosmic. Yes. Yeah. I'm gonna read this line, this uh, from the next column. He knew that this temple was the place required for his invincible intent. He knew that the incessant trees had not succeeded in strangling the ruins of another propitious temple downstream which had once belonged to gods now burned and dead. This is like the temple to the same gods. He knew that his immediate obligation was to dream. Obligation? Yeah. It's it's not like he's doing it out of choice. He is like, this is what I must do. Birds come up again twice in this story, I think. Towards midnight, he was awakened by an inconsolable shriek of a bird. And then later on, he's... He's woken by the daylight and the birdless morning. It, 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 so I'm starting to think the phoenix, right? Rising from the ashes. 
out of the ashes, the phoenix rises again. But it's not a bird, exactly. It's a horse tiger <laughs> temple. Sure. And so the yeah. tiger is man, right? We get and tiger, the tiger, burning bright. And then what about the horse? He's running? Not sure. Well, I mean, it depends on where you want to go with that. I mean, one of the things about the horse is that the horse is an invasive species in Latin America, uh-huh. which is interesting. Um, it's also the uh, you know, symbol of force and power and dynamism, nobility, um, which is you know a pretty popular symbol for that. Um, and so like the horse and the tiger are both these very noble, powerful animals um, that are terrifying and, if controlled, become a source of a great deal of power. Um, the horse is also a domestic animal, uh, which can be used to carry um, and that's where the horse or tiger becomes a real gap because the tiger mm. is not domesticated except by the occasional member of the Russian mafia. <laughs> <laughs> or a, a Las Vegas showtainer. Yeah, show entertainer. That's right. Um, and not for very long. The this story is super enigmatic, and yet we know exactly what happened, sort of. <laughs> well said. Yeah, only warriors could pull something like that off. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that comes. There's a question I want to ask before we run out of time, which is: uh, there's this really precise calendar he establishes. And I've been going back and forth on this. The only one that seems especially meaningful to me is when he creates the heart, mm-hmm. because he says that he waited until the moon's disk was perfect. And again, Jesse, I don't know what the translation you have has for this. Um, so I'm thinking, all right, this is the full moon now. In a sense, it could be the new moon, but it's hard to see that this being perfect in that case. So if that's if I'm right, if that is the full moon, he starts that, and then it takes two weeks, 14 mm-hmm. days, 14 lucid nights for it to really start. So if, if it is the full moon, two weeks later, we'll go to the new moon. So we right. go from pure white to pure black. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, do we go from lucidity to obscurity, from clarity to darkness, or is this a hint that this is going to be something which, at heart, is going to be truly terrible? Mm. Ah. The translation here reads, he dreamed that it was warm, secret, about the size of a clenched fist and of a garnet color within the penumbra of a human body as yet without face or sex. During fourteen lucid nights, he dreamt of it with meticulous love. Every night, I love meticulous love. (laughs) Every night he perceived it more clearly. He did not touch it. He only permitted himself to witness it, observe it, and occasionally to rectify it with a glance. He perceived it and lived it from all angles and distances. On the 14th night, he lightly touched the pulmonary artery with his index finger, the finger that was cut off in the previous story. Then the whole heart, outside and inside, he was satisfied with the examination. He deliberately did not dream for a night. He then took up the heart again, invoked the name of a planet. In the other story, we had invoked a name. Maybe it's in this one. In uh, Invoked the name of a god it was lawful to... to right. To invoke. But not specified. Right. And, uh, yeah, invoke the name of a planet. Which is it? Like Mars? Right? 
Venus? Right. I mean, I, I, I'd guess Venus for love in the heart. Oh, I'd say Mercury again. Oh, that's possible. Invoke the name of a planet and undertook the vision of another of the principal organs. This is, it doesn't say which one. Like, Within a year, he had come. <laughs> it could be the penis. We don't know. Right. So within a year, he had come to the skeleton and the eyelids. So this creation is not of a man very, you know, quickly like God does it. He's much more meticulous than God, uh, or at least slow than God. And this is my favorite line. The innumerable hair was perhaps the most difficult task. (laughs) (laughs) So many hairs. Uh, every, you know, the armpit hair and the shoulder hair. He dreamed an entire man, a young man who did not sit up or talk, who was unable to open his eyes. Night after night, the man dreamt him asleep. Right. But, but before you before you get to those paragraphs, we to go to the question of when does this start and how long does it take? It goes mm-hmm. back up. Before resuming his task, he waited till the moon's disk was perfect. Then mm-hmm. in the afternoon, he purified himself in the waters of the river, worshipped the planetary gods. There we go, planetary gods again. Pronounced yeah. the prescribed scribbles of a mighty name and went to sleep. Mm. He dreamed almost immediately with his heart throbbing. Uh huh. So yeah, he starts in he starts in a full moon, worships planetary gods, does this fourteen days with meticulous love. Then in the new moon, he finishes it, and then then he did a dream for a night, which means we're over the new moon and we started. And he took up the heart again, invoked the name of planet. We have us. The moon, so the moon started the first beginning of a crescent, and then he starts again. So yeah, we go from full moon to moon moon, and then starting the cycle again, where he starts working on the other organs. Mm-hmm. The circularity of the ruins. I mean, this is sort of, you know, the infinite uh, recirculating, going back and around again, so that the story gives us, you know, we start with the ruins, we end in ruins, sort of idea. But uh, the moon is uh, a disc. Whereas we're in an amphitheater, and one of the the little note margins I made on the side was actually the one that's sometimes used to describe the 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 uh, I don't know geography of the story called the Library of Babel, mm-hmm. uh, which it's you know hex, hexagonal rooms with a a hole in the bottom and a hole in the top in which if you drop something it falls infinitely. Um, and yet there's rooms next door that also have, uh, holes and bottoms and holes and tops, but, uh, there's only two exits in these hexagonal rooms. So how does, how does it look? One interpretation has it as a, as a torus, which is, uh, you know, a donut shape. Mm. And that actually fits with it being an amphitheater as well. If it's the bottom half of an amphitheater, it's sort of, you know, you've got the center under which the man is hiding in the leaves, right? <laughs> and then the clouds above. It, it's it's very, very interesting. Hard to. I don't know. It's very hard, hard to to explain what this story does to you when you read it. It's like magic. It's a magic spell. It's funny. I don't. Um, you know. I think about the Lovecraft fandom. Um, of which I am a member and, you know, I have, I have a few Cthulhu statues and, you know, I've owned different Necronomicons in the past. Um, I've been to the Cthulhu prayer breakfast at the Necronomicon <laughs> conference in Providence, <laughs> but I, I don't, 
I don't feel that kind of compulsion with Borges. I mean, I, I would love to own one of the uh, Tlon Ukbar Overstertius volumes, you know, encyclopedia volumes. But beyond that, I, I don't feel that kind of um, that pull. And I, I don't think I don't think anybody does. Um, well, I, it's funny because he, you know, uh, Borges was the darling of the literary set, right? Right. When he was alive. And Lovecraft is becoming that maybe a little bit, but more like with university darling, you know, university English teachers rather than, you know, the literati who, I don't know, populate Eastern. No, he, <laughs> Eastern United States yeah, he, uh, literary circles, he got right? The, uh, the New American Library edition, and that was considered right. a big, a big achievement. But he's still, he's still very marginal, right? In, yeah. in academia and in, in, in literature, yeah. I mean, that's definitely a huge difference. That uh, Borges is still a god of, of mm-hmm. modern literature, and he, he's sort of a distant god. Where you feel Lovecraft is much, much more personable. What, what I want to tell you guys about this story uh, that I read this week that's unrelated, but unrelated to Borges, but um, I thought really nicely shows how similar they are to uh, Lovecraft, uh, how Borges and Lovecraft are similar. One of the things that Lovecraft did was, um, you know, that intertextuality thing that he's always referring to books that are real and some that are not real in Mm -hmm. his books and crossing those over into other stories. Um, Borges would make up quotes all the time. One of my favorites is, is uh, the, the citations in the Garden of Forking Paths. Some of them are to real, you know, World War One scholars, right? Right. And some of them are fake, or if they're they're real scholars with fake books, right? Uh, real people or whatever. There's a a story I read this week by Lovecraft called Ibid. I B I D. Mr. Jim Moon, have you read that one? Oh yes, yes. <laughs> now I had avoided it because I'd read the Wikipedia entry. Um, and it says it's a parody of uh, some sort of thing, um, and you know Roman scholar. Uh, so it's it's a the idea is that it's a biography, a short biography of a Roman uh, scholar or something like that, and it's a parody of of nineteenth century scholarship of whatever. So that sounds really boring to me, but when you start reading the story, there's there are these citations and footnotes. Which uh, connects us to Borges, um, who loved doing that too. But what's so funny about the story is you start reading it, and it's just this guy, sort of straight-up lifestyle of a guy living in ancient Rome and what he did. And then he dies about halfway through the story. But the story continues. (laughs) And the story continues because somebody digs him up, and they start using his skull for various things. And um, it gets passed around to various tribes in Europe um, who, you know, sat, who treat it as a, a reverential object or an object of value. It gets carved, something carved into its forehead. Um, somebody ends up using it as a, a drinking vessel, right? Um, eventually, it makes its way to uh, late uh, New England, America. And is passed around to various tribes there, um, is lost and won in, in chess matches and <laughs> uh, poker games, um, ends up in the hands of a drunkard who uh, in one one night lets it roll out into the street down into a hole in the ground where a bunch of 
uh, groundhogs begin to worship it as a deity. <laughs> worship it as a deity. It is then thrust out of up out of the earth and ends up in its present location. Right? So the whole thing of the story is that it's a joke. It's a huge joke. It starts off very straight, late, straight laced, and eventually becomes. You know, this guy had much more interesting adventures in his death <laughs> <laughs> than he had in life, and <laughs> by the end, you're just laughing out loud. Um, but doesn't that the one that ends with the uh, with the prairie turning into a cliff with the, right with the, with the skull on top? Right. This is like in the end, he finally gets raised up high after going through all this crap. Exactly. And so it, it, that sense of humor that um, that Lovecraft has is so not represented in the Lovecraft scholarship that I, you know, I, I think everything that I've read of um, S.D. Josie's yeah it's all technically true right but when you look at his notes they don't say look at how hilarious this is they they're just like you know this is a reference to that and it's like that that treating it like a scholarship thing uh is sort of underselling that it's a hilarious story i i guess it's hard to put that in a wikipedia entry that this story is really funny (laughs) but that's what it was it was a really funny little story and, well, it's based on that classic schoolboy error of seeing footnotes marked Ibid and assuming it's right. a scholar and extrapolating from there. This, uh, right. And I mean, it, I mean, there's a lot of humor in Lovecraft that I think is often, often missed. And um, in um, the uh, BBC radio uh, documentary uh, you linked us to, they mm-hmm. talk a lot about kind of there's a lot of humor in Borges that maybe a lot of people don't realize that yeah, exactly. his central theme was of a of this you know uh, irony and you know kept coming back and you know he was showing kind of the ridiculousness of things through these kind of these little gnomic stories where you have these strange loops and whirls and paradoxes and regressions and yeah, I get the sense that he had a really good sense of humor, but it wasn't the kind of laugh out loud. Uh, he's laughing at everybody's, you know, fart jokes. It, it was it's fairly sophisticated in the sense that isn't this humorous? And I think the effect of, you know, the fact that he's he doesn't mind the translations going off off. You know, if we have two different translations of the same story and and one says blades and the other one says brambles. And we're like, oh, what does this mean? <laughs> um, he he's like, great. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's exactly more the merrier. Mm. For. I, I think you've been having a lot of fun with this. Um, you know, I, I agree about the humor in Lovecraft, and he draws on this as with so many other things from Poe, who is absolutely mm-hmm. hilarious and um, uh, a prankster, literally, and um, but also with language. I mean, they're, they're both so so careful. I. If we stick with the American setting, um, I'd, I'd say this reminds me the, – the humor is kind of wry. It reminds me a bit of Melville, who um, is is also someone with that un, unbelievable high pitch of language, just can really – especially middle and later Melville, has extraordinary sentences, ridiculous vocabulary, epic, epic referential range. It has a sense of humor, but it's dark and often just – a little puckish, a little wry that you have to look for, and it leaps out in the middle of horror. And Melville is also often cited as a huge influence in American horror because the stuff is is some of the stories are literally horror, and some of them are just uh, deeply partake of horror, including Moby Dick, including uh, 
well, many of later stories. I think we're we're done. We, we've reached the we've we've circled the room. Yeah, yeah, we could circle forever. Well, we have to wake up at some point <laughs> and find out someone else was dreaming us. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 